Thank you for joining IEB There. And now your host, Angelina Eng. Over to you, Angelina. Thank you, John. Uh, today is June 10th. Uh, I'm Angelina Eng, your host for today. Uh, I am the VP of Measurement and Attribution for the IEB and IEB There. Welcome to IEB There, um, our, our daily live stream in which we connect the digital advertising ecosystem. Uh, our, today, our topic for uh, is mis uh, misperceptions of agorification during COVID-19 with our guest, Shalyn Dar, CEO of Method Media Intelligence, also known as MNMI. Uh, before we get started, uh, some uh, rules. Uh, if you would like to submit questions, please go to Twitter using hashtag IABthere, one word. Um, uh, but before we start, uh, I have a few words. So um, for the very first time, IAB New Friends will take place as a virtual event. The event will take off in less than two weeks on June 22nd for five days of original video and audio content presentation for some of the biggest names in media and entertainment. This year's New Front is about guiding marketers and agencies towards the latest opportunities emerging from the complexity and celebrating the best new experience available in what is an entirely new day. So again, that date is June 22nd. Um, and we're going to show a, a short video clip. It's a great opportunity for all of our clients to come together and get to see uh, the showcase of all the great content that's available from our uh, largest digital partners. We like to learn what the partners are doing in the digital space. We like to understand what's new, how is the content platforms changing and evolving with the rapid fire digital space. Um, thank you for uh, staying with us. Uh, now I'm going to introduce you to Shalyn Dar um, onto the screen. Again, CEO of Method Media Intelligence, also known as MMI. Shalyn, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, awesome. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. Uh, so thank you for joining us today and uh, have some uh, interesting uh, topics to discuss. But first, uh, before we start, why don't you give us a little background about what Method Media Intelligence is and what do they do and what your role is? Sure. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of MMI. Uh, we started in 2017 as a research-based consultancy uh, around the topic of robotic and automated traffic. And uh, over the last three and a half years, we've kind of slowly transitioned to being a full product suite for all ad verification and brand safety needs. Great. And um, what do you, um, yeah, can you give us a little uh, bit about what are your priorities for the remainder of the year and what are you seeing as well? Yeah. Uh, 
our priorities for the remainder of this year are uh, working on some platform deployments. Uh, historically, we've uh, focused on working with marketers directly on kind of a software license basis. And uh, now with uh, the effects of COVID-19 on both budgets and uh, kind of operation shifts within marketers, we've found some uh, very compelling reasons to make it a little bit more accessible. And we're really focused on framing ad verification as a utility, not a luxury. Uh, I think if you look at the CPM prices for a lot of verification and uh, you know, brand safety technologies, the CPMs are high enough that it deters some media buyers, uh, many media buyers from actually implementing it on campaigns. So, our goal for this year is just to really stamp that into marketers' minds that ad verification and that type of protection should be a utility, not a luxury. Right. Now, uh, let's 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 go into uh, COVID nineteen, and you know, there's been a, we've had several other verification companies uh, join us on IAB. There, love to get your perspective of what's happening in the marketplace, and uh, as as the topic of this uh, IAB there episode is, is what are some of the misperceptions? that are in, in place right now that you think uh, uh, companies need to know about? Uh, I think there's some kind of collective misunderstandings in the industry uh, around what is affecting the monetization of news right now. Uh, a lot of blame has been pointed, uh, I think wrongfully, at uh, brand safety technology companies as if uh, we control uh, who spends money and where they spend it. but. Uh, I think the main thing we have to acknowledge is that budgets have dropped, and that is a major contributing factor to uh, major publishers and news sites not receiving as much revenue as they did before. And the actual um, brand safety technology implementation around things like sensitive current events, uh, like the pandemic and the deaths surrounding it, you know, one of the examples that's come up in a lot of discussions is there's positive coronavirus news, and then there's negative coronavirus news. Uh, positive is, you know, some sort of article or blog post around uh, parenting tips for homeschooling during the pandemic and the lockdown. And then there's others that are very explicitly, you know, negative in a sentiment way, uh, you know, about death tolls and the effect on families. So. Uh, differentiating between the two is important both from a planning perspective as well as an implementation perspective. And uh, one thing that we always focus on with uh, clients is knowing whether your detection is happening pre-transaction or post because marketers have a completely different approach to brand safety when they know that they're paying for that impression anyways versus if they think that, hey, if I block this, uh, that I'm not going to be actually billed for that impression. So can you explain that a little more? Because I think, you know, you bring up a good point that uh, a lot of other uh, 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 competitors of yours have, have been under the microscope regarding uh, putting in their own in-house ads in those spots. Um, but you're, what you're saying is that, that those impressions are still being billed, billed for and, and being yeah. paid by, but... It, it's just right now poor user experience or what, what's going on? Uh, I think the user experience uh, effect is debatable. Uh, but, you know, our clients, uh, the advertisers that we work with, have unanimously chosen to just monitor 
brand safety violations or even keyword flags. Uh, they're fully aware that you know, when you detect that after the actual transaction is complete that you pay for it anyway. So uh, better, better to monitor where all it's happening and what type of sites than to block it outright. Uh, you know, there's a lot of whitelisting enforcement that can be done to avoid the actual like brand safety catastrophes. Um, for you know, automotive companies, it's around car crashes. For alcohol beverage companies, it's around you know, DUIs and drunken driving accidents, uh, where you really don't want to be next to those things. Uh, you know, another thing for alcohol companies is children's sites and kind of family-oriented sites that you don't want to be uh, placed in those environments. So uh, there's only so much, and this is, I think, really important, is there's only so much that brand safety technologies can control in these live auction environments. And I think a lot of thought and preparation can be done to avoid catastrophes just in the planning phase, as well as being cognizant of what type of creatives are you serving? Because it's not necessarily that users uh, flip out and start a boycott just because your normal brand image was placed in, you know, maybe what the marketer perceives as an unsavory context, but that's where the user is. Uh, you know, part of programmatic was wanting to follow the user around wherever they were. But then we had this realization in the industry, well, yeah, we want to follow them around, but not here and not here and not here. And I think there's a lot of planning work can help, that can help avoid that. Um, and, you know, not just relying on the live detection of brand safety companies. Now, um, so, it, you know, during this crisis, as well as, you know, what was happening, from a social perspective in the last couple of weeks where you know there's there's tactics in which brand safety plays but how does how does this idea of brand suitability fall into brand safety and, and you know what first what's the difference and then how should brands and, and, and agencies go about it so i think there's uh the common understanding across the industry, and it doesn't apply to every marketer, but kind of the general understanding is that there's explicit brand safety, which includes things like piracy sites, uh, pornography sites, and any sort of like violent content. Uh, that's explicitly brand unsafe, where kind of this critical mass of media buyers has decided that there's no campaign where I want to serve next to that type of content. And then there's suitability uh, which is specific generally to an industry or a specific advertiser. Uh, like I mentioned, the uh, cases with an automotive brand or an alcohol beverages brand, um, where specific things to their um, business, uh, you know, catastrophes related to their business are what they want to avoid being next to. I think the most commonly used example uh, is the airline ad next to an article about a plane crash. Um, you know, similar, like, I don't necessarily think that a shampoo company um, is going to be hurt by placing an ad next to a plane crash. And that's part of the thing that I think is becoming more of a uh, important discussion in the industry is what type of content are you supporting with your ad dollars? And are you really incentivizing news publishers that attract real human attention uh, to write about current events and do good journalism because you know, that's what helps monetize the internet right. is digital ad dollars. So 
uh, I think all marketers and decision makers and the media buyers need to be aware of that, that um, you know, their decisions do impact uh, how we monetize the internet. And uh, I think you know, for most part, it's kind of that snowflake in an avalanche problem that no snowflake in the avalanche ever feels individually responsible, but you know, when it gets uh, to a high enough number, it does have some serious consequences. So, especially with brand suitability, I mean, two of the main approaches have been around uh, domain targeting or a whitelist and a blacklist, as well as keywords, right? But um, we're also hearing from various uh, various companies that they're offering up uh, uh, sentiment analysis and uh, applying that to to brand safety and suitability. Um, first, kind of, you know, is that something that you guys offer as well? And what are some of the challenges, if you will, or, or misperceptions around uh, uh, using sentiment as, as a tool? Yeah, uh, we are working on it. Our, our team is working on uh, adding that, but we do have to tread carefully because brand safety and suitability is subjective enough already. Uh, adding sentiment uh, as some sort of uh, real signal is difficult because you're relying on the human input to kind of train the models on what is positive and what is negative. And that is just inherently biased based on whoever's going to be programming it. And I think we've seen this with Facebook in the past where they hired a large team of content curators uh, to go through the content. And there was a very obvious you know, political leaning that that collective group had. And people were rightfully upset because it, you know, from the outside, it looks like censorship, but the bias of those individuals collectively does actually create that dynamic. So um, it is possible. Uh, we're working on releasing that uh, in future updates, but I definitely think the industry as a whole needs to tread carefully and not assume that, you know, positive and negative sentiment are going to be clear and then consistent across every vendor. So how, how, are, you, how are you planning to help educate uh, your buyers on, on being able to, to make you know, sound decisions off of that then? Like, what are there? We, we go the route of boring them substantially with as much educational material uh, as possible. So, um, you know, when these discussions come up, we get into the weeds on how exactly that works and basically present to them, like, okay, if you were managing this, what type of group would you put together to actually create that baseline? of sentiment because it's not right for one person or two people or even four people within any organization to just make those decisions on behalf of everybody else. And so um, I, I'm so you, you had said that most of your customers were brands or are they all, all, all of them currently? Yeah, all of them currently. Okay. So I, I, cause one of the questions I was going to ask, you know, if you were to approach the agencies, how, you know, how, you know, how, um, how much, uh, collaborations you actually have with their yeah. clients as well, so, or vice versa. So right the agency's uh, dynamic is interesting because they have to serve a wide array of customers with all different needs. So our product implementation becomes more generalized when putting it in front of an agency because they're not just serving one type of advertiser. Right. Uh, when we're working with one marketer at a time, we can scope their brand safety guidelines exactly to what's relevant to them and not 
generally across the industry. Uh, I think you know, a relevant example is uh, you could take the United Auto Workers Union. That is a sensitive keyword for every automotive yeah. company. That is not a sensitive keyword for anybody else. And so when doing it through the agency, we have to kind of create the generalized guidelines and then industry or advertiser specific guidelines on top of that. And, you know, that, it's just how it has to work because the agency has to be able to deploy it seamlessly across the board. And then for specific marketers that have, you know, have thought through this and come up with their own guidelines, we need to be implemented to implement those as well. And how often are you seeing the, the uh, either the client or the agency reevaluating their uh, keyword list, their white list, their black list? Is, it, is this something that they're doing daily or monthly? Uh, I think it definitely should happen more often. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we've seen is uh, somebody basically scraped uh, urbandictionary.com and put all the kind of raunchy, horrible uh, craziness from that site into the keyword list. And when our team went through and actually, I feel so bad that they had to actually do this, but they went and looked up all these terms and it was literally nowhere else on the internet except for Urban Dictionary. And so we just told them like, hey, you can remove all these from the keyword list and just blacklist Urban Dictionary because you obviously seem to have a problem with the content there. So. Uh, I would generally say once a month is decent, but then there's always off cases when there is something kind of current in the news that is very sensitive, uh, that is very tragic, that maybe an advertiser just doesn't want to touch yet. And there's a lot of different points of view on, you know, whether these companies should be taking a stand and supporting that, uh, whether there's actual detriment to the consumer sentiment on, that brand based on it. There's conflicting research, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I would say once a month is kind of as much as we can ask uh, from the outside. Now, during, during the, um, once COVID started, especially in the early stages, did you see a lot of quick reactions uh, from most of your customers or were they kind of in the same um, position in your POV on, on, being a little bit more, you know, careful about how they were blocking. Uh, yeah, so we, all of our uh, advertisers monitor only. So they just collect the data on where all it's appearing and what type of content it's next to. But uh, if they were to block, I think we would have pushed them to do it earlier because there's no point if, you know, if you really have that concern, there's no point letting it slip for several days. So we added those keywords very early on. Uh, just to see and track that uh, uptick in the flags. But uh, for anybody that's blocking or swapping them out, uh, I would hope that they did it immediately or as soon as possible. So you talked about blocking. Um, what are some of the difference between pre-bid detection and post-bid detection, especially on how it applies to brand suitability, viewability, and IVT, SIVT? Yeah, I, I think most people... Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessary that 90% of operators in this industry really know this difference, but uh, for the decision makers, it's important to know that a pre-bid environment 
is, uh, it comes with limitations in how much information you have about that impression, uh, as well as a time constraint on how long you can take to make a decision. And so in an IVT context, you're kind of limited to uh, things like IP address or user agent, and maybe some other characteristics about the browser. But in a post-bid context, and this is what a lot of you know, bot detection companies and verification companies in this industry uh, tout as a differentiator is that kind of proprietary behavioral analysis to detect automation versus human behavior. And that really only happens post-bid. And so all the marketers that are doing that post-bid detection need to have a clear reconciliation process in place because I really don't see the point in detecting 2%, 3%, 10% invalid traffic if you're not actually reconciling it and having it removed from your invoices. And so, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of media buyers and marketers that have this detection in place, but are kind of just continuing to pay for that waste and not actually addressing it and removing it from their invoices. So, so in how, how, scenario, you just have more information to work with uh, and more time to make your decision. And given that uh, it's important to have a reconciliation process in place, pre-bid can only do so much. And you know, there was a lot of this uh, discussion in the press and different uh, circles about brand safety technology, you know, with the swapping that every time you saw blue clouds that, you know, that publisher wasn't getting their money. And that's just not true. Uh, because if you're seeing that ad actually get placed, that means the transaction was complete. Uh, and that after the auction closed, they detected that there was something wrong with the context. And then they swapped out right. a default creative instead of the advertiser's actual ad. So I have uh, two more questions. One is around ad fraud yeah. uh, and bad actors. And do you, you know, uh, there's been lots of articles and, and studies saying how much we've saved in the industry in terms of ad blocking and um, being able to detect fraud and, and bad actors. Um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that, you know, we are catching a lot of that, but there's still a lot more that we're not? Or... Are we improving or what are some of the challenges? I think the challenges are we do have a little bit of an echo chamber around ad fraud in the uh, ad tech industry. The majority of the discussion about what the threat is uh, centers around these like mythical cyber criminals and hackers that just literally have nothing better to do than run ads on their fake sites. Our research suggests something different, and a lot of cybersecurity companies and bot detection companies outside of advertising, uh, their research suggests the same, that the majority of automated traffic comes from data centers. It's far easier to deploy, and there's not the same criminal liability as infecting people's computers with malware and then remotely operating them. Um, I think our focus on what the threat of ad fraud is and where robotic traffic comes from and why it's created needs to change. Uh, estimates outside of ad tech all indicate that it's 40% or higher, the amount of robotic traffic that's on the internet. So we can't really look at this like the, uh, the what we uh, differentiate between incrimination approaches and exoneration approaches. So everybody's interacted with a CAPTCHA at some point, 
a CAPTCHA is that exoneration approach that we're going to assume you're a robot unless you can do ABC and show us that you're a human. Incrimination works in the opposite way that we're assuming this is a human unless they display signs one, two, three, or four. And if they're displaying three out of those four signs, there's a 72% probability that it's robot and let's flag it for being that. And I think given the proportion of automated traffic on the internet and knowing that it's coming from headless browsers deployed in data centers, uh, we have to switch that approach uh, from being probabilistic to deterministic. So, so who do you think owns that responsibility to remove that ad fraud, ad bot traffic from the marketplace? Is it the publisher, the ad exchange, the ad server, uh, the verification uh, companies? Um, so the only one being financially hurt by it is the advertiser because they're the ones paying for everything. Um, and they're not getting what they intended with their money. But it does affect everybody else in the supply chain. It is a common trend in ad tech that a report comes out and you know people are doing people are looking at everybody else and not looking in the mirror at what they're doing themselves. And everybody uh, is a victim and nobody really takes responsibility. You know, oh, ad tech has transparency issues, but you know, it's all the other people that have transparency issues, not us. And I think collectively, we just need to take some responsibility around if a critical mass of advertisers at the same time wises up to the transparency issues and the uh, traffic verification issues that just downsizes. So uh, I think we all need to take more responsibility because right now the way we're operating, I don't think is stable or sustainable. So do you think, you know, given um, the changes uh, that Google had announced, as well as some of the browsers and their positions around privacy by default, uh, that uh, a lot of this would be solved through uh, because of some of the privacy um, uh, or addressability and accountability uh, 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 restrictions, if you will, or not restrictions, but uh, the, the logistics around how it's going to look like without the cookie. Um, do, do you think yeah. that somehow the somehow that a lot of that detection would be solved? I think privacy and bot detection, uh, unfortunately, have conflicting interests. Um, the more privacy every browser has the less accurate behavioral um, bot detection is going to be. Um, you know, certain browsers like Brave prevent any third-party technologies from being able to look at what the user is doing or what type of device they're on and what type of hardware they're running on. Um, the We've always kind of maintained a privacy focus because our detection is based on the device. It's not based on the actual user's behavior. But uh, I think with the deprecation of the third-party cookie, uh, there's going to be either an increase in the cost of verification or there's just going to be a reduction in its efficacy uh, for any technologies that rely on cookies right now. Because uh, you know, naturally, if you're doing this very complex behavioral analysis on a user, you, once you make that decision, you do want to cookie them as either a bot or 
human so that you don't have to do that whole analysis and decisioning again and again and again. So uh, for that reason, I just, you know, our kind of outlook on this is that uh, verification companies will have to do far more analysis and store far more information, which is going to increase our costs uh, if they don't have the cookie to rely on. So we have two more minutes and I don't see any questions in the queue right now, but quick one, uh, one question is, um, um, with, with some of the, based on the proposals from privacy sandbox and the, and the, and types of data that would be available to you, do you, you know, you talked about how verification companies are probably going to work much harder to kind of evaluate. So without log files or raw log files and, and kind of being able to, uh, see some of the getting getting some of the data points that you collect right now, um, and not have that in the future. What do you think is the future of verification companies? The future of verification okay. companies? Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to have to. I think it's going to have to switch more to the exoneration approach, uh, where we do have to assume it's a bot unless we see signs that this computer is operated by a human. And it's going to have to be more and more privacy compliant. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, unnecessary data collection right now on personally identifiable information, and that's just going to have to go away. Well, I thank you very much for joining me today. It was thank great. You for me. Um, I, I hope to have you again in the future. So uh, um, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Um, Thank you for those. Uh, uh, on tomorrow's IAB there, we're excited to have welcome JT Betson from uh, founder and CEO of Hudson MX and the IAB CEO Randall Rothenberg, where they will be discussing the growing need for the industry to start the change equity movement. IAB there is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, and Twafika Mahunadin. I'm Angelina Eng. Thanks for watching. Come back tomorrow because if it's 2 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, you know it's time to IAB there. Thank you again, everyone. Have a great day. It's a great opportunity for all of our clients to come together and get to see uh, the showcase of all the great content that's available from our uh, largest digital partners. We like to learn what the partners are doing in the digital space. We like to understand what's new, how is the content platforms changing and evolving with the rapid fire digital space.